This is Near FM 90.3. Hi, I'm delighted to be joined by Mario and Nancy Najera. I hope to God I got the pronunciation right there, folks. How are you? And you're very welcome to the programme. How you doing? Thanks for having us. Yeah, your pronunciation's grand. Very <laughs> good. You, now, the, this next one could catch me out. Zapatista and uh, the Zapatista uh, podcast and their lessons and stories from the Chiapas. Am I right or Chiapas? Well, Chiapas. Chiapas, very good. And that is a documentary podcast series that we will be broadcasting. We're delighted to be broadcasting that here on Near FM next week. Now, uh, I suppose, first of all, guys, if you could tell me what the Zapatista is all about, because this is, I know it started in Mexico, but I am here to be educated. Please do tell me. We sure will. So, yeah, your pronunciation of Zapatistas is spot on. Obviously, the, the, the Z in Spanish is just like an S, Zapatistas. And, yeah, they're... Um, a movement that, as you're right, started in uh, southern Mexico um, among different indigenous groups in Chiapas, the, the region right next to Guatemala, but still in Mexico. And, um, well, basically, um, they kicked off in 94 with an uprising that captured the, the world um, in the media at the time. And they've been, um, well, they've been very busy doing different things in creating an autonomous regions for themselves. And basically, we wanted to um, do a podcast. We have a five-part podcast series um, looking at all the, the the big political feats that they've they've undergone. And we wanted to do it at this particular time because um, they are actually visiting Europe for the first time as we speak. And we thought it would be, well, very important because they're one of the the most well-known um, indigenous um, movements in the world. And when you say, Nancy, that there was an uprising in 1994, what were they actually, what was the uprising against, if you know what I mean? Yes, well, I'll, t- I'll take that question. The the uprising, well, the conditions in Chiapas, uh, Chiapas is in the, the, the south of Mexico. It's uh, the poorest, or one of the poorest states in Mexico. And it it consists of um, a lot of indigenous, uh, Mayan groups, uh, Mayan indigenous uh, groups. Now, uh, the majority of them were living in what we call haciendas, with these big, like, farms um, owned by rich uh, landowners. And you had, like, a semi-slave system, a lot of exploitation. So... um, they had been organizing since the 70s and 80s um, to, have, to revolt. It was an armed uh, revolt against the Mexican government. They chose January f- uh, 1st, 1994, because that's when NAFTA takes place, and that's the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And just when, you know, uh, the world was thinking that... Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the communism had, had fallen, capitalism was at its height. Here were this, this group of indigenous rebels who were fighting against capitalism in a different way. Um, and they, they, there was a war for 11 days, and then 
the Mexican government, uh, sorry, the Mexican public uh, went out to protest because they didn't want the violence. So they they agreed with the Zapatistas uh, with the, with their indigenous struggle uh, for rights of land is what they were really wanted um, rights of land um, to have an autonomy within their their region. So they. Um, they changed strategy, and uh, the movement actually from an armed uh, guerrilla group. They still have the army, uh, but they haven't fought since those eleven, uh, the first eleven days, and they've become a nonviolent group, practicing uh, autonomy uh, since uh, 1994 to the present day. And how are they now um, dealt with by the Mexican government? Are, are they, you know, are they? Are they given the, I suppose, respect and uh, dignity of their situation, or are they just being sort of, well, look, they're over there, we'll give them something to keep them quiet and carry on as normal? I mean, are they are they respected, and is their autonomy respected? Well, I think the, the Mexican government um, strategy has changed. I think in the beginning, 1994, it was just uh, uh, they they sent the army, um, uh, Chiapas was a place that wasn't really just forgotten, kind of like the forgotten state, the back um, the, uh, backwaters of, uh, of the country. So they sent the army, um, and after a truce, because of international pressure, there was uh, they 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 decided to to negotiate. So they 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 planned the negotiation. They they had negotiations, sorry, with the Zapatistas and uh, a lot of. Um, uh, they called a lot of people to come negotiate. So um, not only uh, within the Zapatistas in the government, but other, uh, even the church and other officials came to try to establish. Now, what the Zapatistas wanted was just autonomy within their zones, and they wanted um, they wanted to govern their own their own regions. Now, the Mexican government had to play the two sides, so they wanted to look like they were appeasing them. But they really didn't, um, let's say, they didn't uh, follow through with the, the promises and, and that they had made. So they, what, what happened throughout the years is what we call low-intensity war, which is they, had mili- they set up a lot of military checkpoints. They, um, they funded um, other groups within the area, other communities, which caused conflicts to uh, fighting for land uh, within, within the Chiapas region. Now, what happened in 94 was they did the uprising. They took over, um, um, what was it, about uh, four municipalities? Well, they took over a few, uh, the, a few cities, and they kicked the landowners out. And these were Zapatista, um, uh, the Zapatista army, um, was able to do that, and then the communities followed suit, and they took over a bunch of lands. So Chiapas is unique in that sense, where uh, most of the land, even today, is not, uh, it's a communal land, and it's not uh, owned by rich landowners. Yeah, and that is that is actually, I mean, when we look at what is commonly, I suppose, and this is the problem with maybe little knowledge being a dangerous thing, when we look at what was is is commonly referred to around the world as communist countries, very few of them really are communist countries because 
there is one ruling class who run the whole show and I would venture to say enriched themselves greatly as a result of it and everybody else just works for their for those people's betterment and it's a kind of a, a thing that the people making the rules for the game uh, they've already won the game so you know what I mean they're making the rules to suit themselves whereas when you're talking about what is happening in that region of Mexico that does sound to me very like the actual original theory that was behind communism where it was all communal everybody worked on like as you describe it their communal farms but while everybody is working there then everybody is also reaping the benefits that come out the other end of it if you have a good year everybody makes a few bob if you have a bad year everybody takes a hit whereas the other way if you have a good year the people in power benefit if you have a bad year everybody else loses am i am i fairly close there in my summary Yes, yes, you have. There's a slogan with the Zapatistas says is that the people rule and the government obeys. Yes, they've been tried. People have tried to how we say pigeonhole them, pigeonhole them um, to say they're communists, they're um, they're anarchists, and it's just a, it's it's a it's um it's an interesting combination because they use elements of the of traditional indigenous uh, ways of organizing, which is very communal. They have aspects of um, of anarchism and, and, and socialism as well. Uh, what they, what they it's it's a broad scope of 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 different um, ideology, and it just it's just formed into a new Zapatista ideology. They're also um, they also very much um, another slogan that um, I think we've all heard in maybe different um, movements. Not, but I think it's originally very much from theirs is that other worlds are possible. Um, and that they 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 want to obviously share their struggle and um, make as many connections. Well, now that they're they're visiting Europe with all sorts of alternative movements here, but they're very much about like people coming together to find their own um, solutions locally. So it's um, it's not that their model fits everyone, which sometimes a lot of well different movements and um, communism and different flavors of those kind of push one size fits all but they're very much about you know you need to come together with your people around you and figure out what's good locally well, just one just last comment it's just that what they practice is direct democracy what they have is everyone governs in the words it's a rotating government where you have uh, community members are selected and they they govern for a year or two uh, 10, 15, 20, 30, depends on the region. And then the next year, another another group of people govern. So everybody participates. In yeah, the it, it sounds very like, Mario, and, and maybe Nancy would be more familiar with this than you, and I don't mean to be dis disrespectful when I say this, but it sounds very much like a Big Brother version of the cooperative schemes that we would be very familiar with here in this country. Um. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember, can you give us an example? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about, we'll say for argument's sake, like what we would see down in, in, particularly now down in rural Ireland, where you would have the local cooperative and all the farmers would be members of it and there's a sort of a board of management, but that board of management rotates every couple of years so that nobody is there too long to get too comfortable, if you know what I mean, and that exactly. the, the buying of 
the buying and selling of product to the the farmers is done with the benefit of the farmer in mind in other words buy it as cheaply as you possibly can from the supplier because you can buy when you come together in big numbers like that you can obviously buy your your buying power is increased but you sell it for small profit to keep the cooperative going thereby everybody benefits but the knock-on effect into the greater community not just the agricultural community because you're obviously if you can if you can boost the agricultural community in an area shops benefit pubs benefit everything in the area small businesses benefit accordingly the cooperative is definitely a model that has a lot in common with um, the direct democracy and and collective nature of the the local governments they've organized um, and they've expanded it much more in a sense that they've taken it into all their like core aspects of their lives um, and they've you know slowly and with many mistakes along the way but pushing it forward continuously they've managed to to take that um let's say well cooperative and direct democracy to um operating their own um food systems which obviously they were already farmers so that was their their forte um having lots of different women's collectives they have their own educational system just as examples and, and those are the kind of the topics that we'll be touching on in different chapters of the podcast so we we centered it around around a lot of their structures that they've really been able to uh, to work on on the last almost 25 years and tell me this um before we go on to discuss the individual segments of the podcast um the situation there today as opposed to the situation at the back end of 1993. Talk to me about the differences and maybe some of the issues that they came upon which they would never have had to deal with before because government was doing it for them and how their lot has improved, has it disimproved. Just talk to me about that in, in now without giving away the whole podcast, obviously. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, today, I mean... Um, the situation um, for the Zapatista communities in Chiapas to when they started, I think um, in, in many fronts has, um, has improved in the, in the areas that they've been able to deal with directly. So um, in terms of them having control over their own, um, their own lands, their own um, local government structures, setting up their own schools, um, even though you, you said there, you know, things that the government may have taken care of before, now what does that mean today? Actually, it, it means that they may actually have improved even their, their own little health systems that they have running because the indigenous peoples of Mexico, as in many parts of the Americas and the world, are very much um, forgotten and um, some of the, the poorest um, peoples. So, if anything, they've, they've managed to um, to improve some of the facilities that they've had with a lot of um, solidarity work um, in the early years from um, external people that came in to help. But um, today, lots of those systems, they managed to run them very independently um, because they've managed to um, put together the structures to have their own um, health workers, for example, and train them up, etc. That being said, they definitely have uh, a lot of issues that keep um, coming back um, because there's always land grabs in Chiapas area, which has become, over the years, um, 
well, lots of different mining projects have come in and um, ecotourism even becomes a threat because anything that obviously local and national government can make another bit of money off, um, which, you know, in principle might go, oh, ecotourism could improve the economy for local people. But unfortunately, it usually just sucks the money out of the region, again, into the, the well-known pockets of the few. And so their their struggle to keep some of the lands that they did recover has become more violent um, in later, in the more recent years. Um, and what other issues would you mention, Manuel? Well, I think one thing in the beginning, there's the, there's the, the fight, the struggle between the government and the Zapatistas. Uh, as the years have gone gone by, and, and more recently, um, we have the general violence throughout the whole country, and we're talking about organized crime, mm. has just increased uh, significantly. And where Chiapas, in that sense, was a safer place because there wasn't that much organized crime, now it's more it's creeping in more and more, and that's actually, in one sense, it's a more difficult. Um, uh, and and, and so, sorry, Mario, just to, to ask you on, in sure. relation to that, is mm-hmm. is that crime that's, uh, we'll say, spreading south from Mexico as a result of what we all would be familiar with, the Mexican drug cartels, or is it violence spreading north as it coming in over the border from from south of the, the region? Well, there's there's violence in in, the, in Central America. There there's violence, but in terms of Mexico, uh, most of that was located in northern Mexico. Uh, but it's so widespread, the connection all the way through Central America, parts of South America, all the way to the United States. The the drug trade, uh, the people trade. Um, it's it's just and and the government is 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 co-opted in all this. They're part of this. They're part of the the problem. It's organized crime with local government There's and national at the different local government levels. Um, so yeah, it definitely combines with um, a spread of the, the the drug cartels and other layers of corruption probably in local governments. But it probably is um, increasing because of um, more and more migration from Central America towards the States and the different um, routes that the migrants um, decide to take um, in their... Um, yeah, and of course that's, that, that's all, that's all extremely well documented yeah, as well, Nancy. It you know? the criminals to, you know, they even kidnap migrants en route, etc. So it, it becomes a hotspot, not because of the, the migrants themselves, but it just attracts all the organised crime into the area. Yeah, and of course, as we all know, the root of all crime is money, and where there's money, uh, and the more money there are, usually the, or there is usually the the crimes are more vicious and more 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 violent. Guys, we the time is absolutely rocketing by. I can't believe we're twenty two minutes talking already. Just right. I, I know. <laughs> But tell me this, uh, and I just want to remind listeners that uh, Near FM will be broadcasting this series from Monday to Friday of next week, starting at 11 a.m. in the morning. So um, that is something I think is going to be fascinating to listen to. How are relations now between the government of Mexico and the people of the Zapatista region? Well, I think what the what the what the government has tried to do is sort of like I just said a low intensity war, and it's continued that strategy. It's sort of like pays it, it, publicly it pays them no mind, 
and uh, doesn't even uh, Zapatistas have um, perhaps made declarations, and they try to shy away um, from those uh, comments, not to seem um, aggressive towards the Zapatistas, because there is a lot of support for the Zapatistas. Um, but there is what we call the low-intensity war, which is funding uh, groups, paramilitary groups, neighboring communities, to uh, to land grab, yes? And the problem is now if the Zapatista armies retaliate, then the Mexican government has an excuse to go into the region. Well, where we're, we're the Mexican government would say, oh, we're going in to, to, um, to keep the peace, mm-hmm. where in fact they're the, they're the instigators of that. So it's kind of yeah. Well, that's that's of, an age-old tactic, anyway. You know, and it, you know, I mean, we've seen that being used on several occasions. That particular tactic. Tell me this one, guys. Um, and Mario, maybe they were not again, Nancy, not being disrespectful, but how much <laughs> international attention is being paid, and how tight an eye is being kept on the region by international governments and international agencies? Gosh, I figure in the early days that pressure and that keeping an eye on situation was much more intense. Um, I remember reading something about different um, big industries at the time putting a lot of pressure on the Mexican government in the early days. That you know the Zapatistas in itself in '94 didn't disrupt uh, a very important part of Mexico because Chiapas was the backwaters and quite forgotten. But these companies and other governments were very um, they didn't want any examples of any type of groups trying to seek autonomy and gaining anything um, at the time because of other Central American um, groups that would have seen them as a, a, an emblem of hope. Um, I think I, I think that isn't, they're not so worried about that right now um, because the Zapatistas haven't had a big limelight as such. Um, but I think um, a new a new era, let's say, of younger um, movement people here in, in Ireland, in Europe, in um, younger activists and community activists, etc., um, are looking um, for, you know, examples in the, the times we live in. And Zapatistas, you know, they already, they, they have kind of gone through the test of time a bit and they have such good, important lessons that we can all pick up from and make our own that I, I feel that, that that audience is growing, and especially in, in a pandemic, to come to Europe um, and really um, ask people to come together to, to rethink capitalism um, and to make a stand, because as we all know, we have predictions of climate change and everything's gone off the map again this summer. We have everything to lose. Um, so we need to really um, take put a new eye on the Zapatistas and put all the other struggles um, on the map and make uh, links. Uh, as a matter of interest, uh, when are they coming to Europe? They're, they're here. Oh, they're here. Excellent. They, they're on their European tour, arrived. so as such. Well, yeah. uh, I'll say, they they left, They well, they did symbolic because it's the, it's the it marks the 500 years of the conquest of uh, Tenochtitlan, which is present-day Mexico City. So it's uh, August 13th, which is in, uh, in a few days, it marks. So they left on, in the beginning of May on a boat. Uh, there were seven uh, Zapatista representatives, uh, and they sailed with other experienced, um, a group of experienced uh, sailors, 
and they arrived in the port, uh, port of Vigo in, um, in Spain on June 22nd. And they've been in Spain and France um, already touring, um, just these seven members. The idea is for other members to uh, have arrived uh, via plane, but the passport situation and the vaccine situation has made it very, very difficult. And, and, and the Mexican government has tried to block uh, um, the Zapatista representatives from getting their passports. It's just been complete, um, super, super yeah. difficult situation for them. So at the present time, you only have these seven representatives here who are, have been just in Spain and in, and in France. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, most of them are women, and um, well, there's a couple of men, and there's a, a trans woman among them. Uh, they're super representative of the diversity um, among the Zapatistas themselves. Um, but they're going to be around till about October, November, so there's a chance they will come to Ireland, um, <laughs> and there's a small group of people trying to see if they can organize some small, obviously COVID-compliant uh, events. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Well, would you um, please do and please keep us informed of that because we'd love to, to 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 come back to this topic again. Nancy, you are hosting these podcast series. I think the first one is on autonomy with uh, Alejandro. The Zapatista Women's Movement uh, is the next one. Food autonomy and community media. Now that's something we know a lot about here at Near FM. And education is the is the other one. They are the five topics to be covered uh, in the five podcasts, which we will be broadcasting from Monday to Friday of next week at 11 a.m. Guys, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I cannot believe that the half hour has rocketed by so quickly, but it has been an absolute pleasure. And may I say an education to talk to you. Thank you both so much for joining me this morning. Um, Mario Nigera and and Nancy Serrano. Serrano. I knew I'd get it. I knew one of those pronunciations would get me at the end. The website, Nancy, you were mentioning it there, please. Yeah, well, the podcast will be available on uh, glueshocked.ie. So it's G L U A I S E A C H T. Excellent. Uh, and and the uh, Galway Feminist Collective have different Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and Facebook pages. Yes, that's the uh, that Galway Feminist Collective. Easy to remember. Uh, Mario and Nancy, thank you so much for joining me. It has been a pleasure. And do not forget, of course, this interview will be up on our Listen Again on our podcast uh, site later on this afternoon, hopefully. And uh, any of you who missed it, you can listen back to it on, the, on that, thank should I say. Much. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. This is Near FM. 90.3.